So it's, uh, it's the 8th of July. Welcome to the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network. Um, it's a live weekly roundtable discussion during the growing season for commercial vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. So we broadcast live here on Zoom uh, every Wednesday, 12.30 Eastern, 11.30 Central, and basically the first week of May to, to first week of September. So if you are uh, a CCA and need credits, they are available. Uh, if you are certified crop advisor, just enter your name and email in the chat box and we'll, uh, we'll email you a, a QR code that you can use. So Ben Phillips is off today, enjoying a much-deserved uh, break this week from hosting. So unfortunately, you're stuck with me. Um, I'm one of your co-hosts for this week, uh, Dennis Van Dyke. I'm with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture and Food. I'm uh, a vegetable specialist with them. And luckily enough, you have my co-host today, Katie Kreuzer from University of Nebraska Extension. Uh, Mike Reinke is from MSU. He's our Zoom engineer working the, the controls in behind the Oz curtain. And uh, Katie, I'll pass it over to you. What are we doing today? Hi, everybody. Um, today's episode is on biostimulants, microbe-containing products for plant growth. Our guest is Dr. Matthew Kleinhens from The Ohio State University, where he is a professor and extension vegetable specialist. Matt is an expert in a number of areas, including microbial bioproducts, crop quality, crop environments, and vegetable grafting. Um, we'd like our listeners to ask Matt questions using the Q&A box and make sure to upvote your favorites. Matt will tackle these questions in the back half of the show. So I think we'll go ahead and get started with um, the first half with the Q&A. So um, Matt, how is a biostimulant product different from a biopesticide, biofertilizer, compost tea, or uh, mycorrhizae? Well, uh, good to speak with you, uh, with you Katie and, and Dennis, and glad to be here. And uh, hopefully we do get um, a long list of questions that we can tackle in the back half of the uh, discussion. And certainly, you know, folks can reach out to any of the three of us, or myself included, um, if they would like information as a follow-up to this program, recognizing that we may not cover all the questions that people have uh, during this time, and, and we certainly welcome the conversation afterward. But Katie, to your first question about how biostimulants, microbial biostimulants, are different from other somewhat related products, I think it really comes down to how they're made. And of course, their composition is a major factor. These are inputs that contain microbes as the, if not the only, as the active ingredient, uh, certainly, um, possibly a possibly others, but certainly uh, a major component is the, is the microbe, uh, and that's either one or a consortium, if you will. They're also different in the level of regulation, the level, the level of third-party testing, um, the level of data that support their efficacy and potential returns on investment. They differ also from, uh, say, biopesticides, from compost teas, um, from the products that, from types of products that you mentioned. And, in their purpose, which we will, I'm sure we will get to in more detail going forward. They also differ in their modes of action, just exactly how, do, how they work differs from some of the other active ingredients um, or products that you mentioned. And um, they also differ somewhat in the, in the types and uh, consistency of their reported benefits. Uh, certainly, I'm, I, we, we don't have time today to cover compost teas in depth, and my, microbial biostimulants in depth, biopesticides or biostimulants, but if you look across the spectrum of those products, uh, so-called bioproducts, um, you can appreciate that there is a bit of a range in the level of data supporting their reported effectiveness and, um, and also you know, exactly how they work and the other items that I mentioned. Oh, that's great. Uh, so Matt, when I hear growers like talk about 
biostimulants. I would say mostly they're, they're organic growers, um, but there are some conventional. But the organic growers seem to be a little bit more familiar with biostimulants and sort of how they work and how they're using them. But do you have any sort of tips or suggestions on how like a conventional grower could also incorporate them, these products into their program? Sure, absolutely. And I, I, I concur with what you said there. I think that for the most part, if we look carefully at the community of, of vegetable growers using microbial-based biostimulants very consistently, it may be skewed towards the organic sustainable community. But I will, I do uh, need to mention that it is not only made up of that community, that there are conventional growers who have become very curious about microbial biostimulants, have started to incorporate them in their toolbox, and, um, and have uh, you know, di- discussed openly their potential benefits. But to your question, you know, like how to incorporate them, really the, the incorporation piece into the toolbox, incorporation in the toolbox, is largely the same no matter what type of grower uh, you are in, in terms of your system, you know, conventional, organic, sustainable, um, high tunnel, open field, and the like. Um, there are a number of points to, to you know, take in, into account in that, which we can go into in detail, but it really starts with recognizing how the products are intended to work, the conditions under which we think they work most reliably, and then steps taken by the grower to ensure that those conditions are present. And then the tracking, if you will, of their effectiveness in some way, which we again we might we might touch on as we go forward. But the the, the actual steps that an individual grower would take are largely the same, whether they're farming conventionally or, or organically. There might be some special caveats. For example, if one is using a broad spectrum fungicide, then a fungal-based inoculant that's supposed to help the plant. You know, there may be an inconsistency, a, you know, a contradiction there. Um, so we need to be mindful of not only what that you know of what the product contains and how it's supposed to function as we incorporate it into, into the existing tools on our toolbox and ask if if one of them are at odds with the other. But that you know overall application as far as when they're applied and how they're applied, it, it can start at seeding whether in the field or the greenhouse. It can continue in the transplant during transplant production. It can continue at transplanting with a drench, and it can certainly continue after crop establishment or field establishment, planting establishment uh, through drip lines or or drenches. But as far as the actual process for incorporating them, again, it has a lot of overlap. There is a lot of overlap between the conventional community and the organic community. So you kind of touched on this a little bit, but is there any difference between soil versus foliar applied biostimulants? Um, and do different types of crop depend on um, on different applications? Absolutely, there is a, uh, and from my point of view, there is a, a significant difference between foliar and soil applied uh, soil applied products, mainly. Those differences, in my view, revolve around the two environments that we're talking about. Think about the foliar environment, you know, typically dry, typically warm, typically loaded with solar radiation, uh, and, it, and um, has, having its own microbial, naturally occurring microbial community. Contrast that with conditions that occur in many soils, of course, darker, perhaps moister, but not necessarily certainly another consortium, if you will, or a microbial community. So the, the situation into which anyone would put an inoculant, foliarly versus soil applied, it may or may not be in keeping with the conditions that, that, that the microbes in an inoculant need to thrive, you know, survive, thrive, and, and do their work. 
from from uh, my point of view, and and again, um, you know, I encourage growers and other users to investigate, you know, specifically for their purpose. Soil applied is by far the most common, and foliar applied is, uh, you know, a distant second, if you will, in terms of microbial-based biostimulants. We do see, and again, not my particular area of expertise, but we do see foliar applied biocontrol agents. And, but that is a whole other, if you will, can of worms on a whole other uh, topic, if you will, because an official biocontrol agent will have an EPA label. If it, you know, in the U.S., it will have an EPA label. Um, it will have survived very rigorous testing, very rigorous regulation, and it will have, uh, there will be data sets, you know, demonstrating its efficacy under an aerial foliar environment. So I'm curious, is there any, like, what, what are these products actually doing on the, on the plant, like, or to the plant, I guess? Like, is there a difference between what they actually do in the plant versus solar and foliar? Or, like, what are they actually doing to the plant? So it's a great question. And maybe now is the time to um, hit, a temp- hit the pause button temporarily anyway and, and really ask what a biostimulant is. And we don't want to get wonkish and dry <laughs> during this lunchtime discussion. But I think it's very, very important to um, you know, clarify the exact type of product that we're you know we're, we're we're talking about here, and a new development that occurred within the industry, and uh, that is actually in the long run going to benefit growers, and that is that in the most recent USDA Farm Bill, we have language that has been approved describing what a plant biostimulant is. And you might say, well, that doesn't affect me. I'm here. I'm farming here. I'm farming wherever I am. Why does the language in the USDA Farm Bill? affect me in terms of the use of a biostimulant. It affects you in multiple ways, immediate and long-term. The first one is that it begins, in the the short term, it begins a process whereby the product category can be uh, discussed, uh, reported on, tested, uh, and so forth, much more reliably because we now have a working definition of what an actual biostimulant, what a biostimulant actually is. And if it'll permit me, I'll just read read it real, you know, not quickly, but um, bring into focus the kind of product that we're talking about, Dennis, so that we answer your question directly. So the language is plant biostimulant means a substance or microorganism. In this case, it would be a microbe or a consortium of microbes. Then when it's applied to seeds, to plants, or the rhizosphere, of course, the soil surrounding the root zone. Um, In some cases, we see it applied to the bulk soil farther away from the root zone. But anyway, when applied to the soil, It stimulates natural processes in the plant to enhance or benefit any one of the following. Nutrient uptake, so the plant can gather more nutrients. There's a mechanism involved whereby the association between involving the microbe and the plant results in the plant having more uh, nutrient available to it and taking, taking that up. Nutrient efficiency, another metric because one can take, the plant can take up 50 units of nitrogen, but it doesn't use it very effectively as opposed to taking up 100 units, uh, needing to take up 100 units. So it may, you know, this association may result in a greater efficiency within the plant. It may also result in a greater tolerance to some other form of abiotic stress. And in this case, um, uh, that could include temperature, high, especially high temperature, or low moisture is perhaps one of the most often, often cited abiotic stress. And the final one would be to increase crop yield or quality. So that language lays out fairly specifically what USDA expects going forward uh, in terms of how biostimulants are discussed, reported on, studied, examined, and, and, uh, and actually you know, put forth on the, on, the, on the store shelf, if you will, for, for growers. 
So Dennis, to, uh, to uh, come back around to your original question, the biostimulant is, is triggering any one of a number of processes within the plant for the plant to take up nutrients, water, uh, more and use more effectively or efficiently to somehow suppress um, maybe pathogens, but we'll, we'll get to that, and otherwise increase the plant's tolerance to abiotic, other forms of abiotic stress. Not to cut too fine a line, but that, that would be the microbe triggering that reaction inside the plant. The mere presence of that microbe or the microbes in, a, in an inoculant may have similar effects. Nothing really has changed in the plant, if you will, but somehow the presence of that particular consortium of microbes makes more water available, makes more nutrient available, uh, make, secretes uh, compounds that make the plant you know, better able to withstand stress and the like. So it is not necessarily triggering a reaction in the plant so much as providing a benefit. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, well, it's top of mind now as well with what in our area, at least uh, this heat and dry conditions sure. that we're having. Uh, plants are under stress. You know, there's a lot of wilting going on. I think, you know, anything that could, you mentioned that, that, uh, that heat and drug stress are one of the most, I guess, studied. Is there? One of the more common, and I would say right. low, low fertility stress is, uh, is possibly the, the, the top of the, of that, of that particular list in terms of, um, reported and sometimes expected effects of, of inoculation on crops. So in other words, a, a system that has a low background fertility level, for example, per, you know, some would claim, aka organic systems, having lower fertility levels uh, to start with, not relying on, on, on highly soluble you know, synthetic fertilizers, would allow the plant to um, extract more of the nutrients that are in that same soil more you know, effectively and or use them. So Heat stress, temperature stress is also in that list of, of potential um, benefits of inoculation. And just to get um, you know, further on down this line uh, of thinking, uh, in my experience, at least you know, talking with people and reading about reading various reports, that benefit needs to start developing. Uh, the inoculation needs to start early in order for us to have the benefit now here on July 8th, right? So that um, this is not a, a situation, rarely anyway, where inoculation on July 8th results in better, uh, better crop condition on July 10th. It, it typically doesn't work that way because we're talking about fostering a relationship between microbe and plant that takes some time to develop. I want to circle back a little bit to the question about conventional because I, I have heard conventional growers say, you know, oh, I threw this product, a biostimulant product in furrow and I didn't really see any benefit or so then they don't use it again and that sort of thing. Is there, I guess, what should these growers be, I guess, looking for if they're using one of these products? Like, is it is it better yield, which is, I guess, what most of them are looking for, just that bump up in straight yield? But do you see more quality differences, more greener, or anything like that? Like, what what do you think growers should be looking for? They should be looking for. It's a fantastic question, and it's one of the most commonly asked ones. So it's good good that we can address it at least partly here. It they should be asking or looking for whatever the purported benefit of the product is that is on the label, uh, represented in, in the literature around the product and so forth. Now, whether or not those claims are well-founded will be up to the grower and the people that they're working with to determine, you know, well-founded year in and year out, season in, season out, planting in, planting out, whether or not they're well-founded, unfortunately, will be up to the grower and others that they work with to determine. But one would want to start with, what is it expected to do? have the conversation with the product manufacturer or the product rep and, and require them to be specific. Is this going to enhance yield? 
Is this going to keep a proper color for a crop that may need, may need that? Is this going to benefit me only during a stress time so I'll be able to maintain yield? Uh, what, what claims, uh, what are the exact claims being made about the product? So, so begin there. And then, of course, as, as anyone would, whether conventional or organic, they would want to then set out on a process to test that and verify it if they can. And if they're not seeing the benefit, they can have a conversation with the rep. They can have a conversation with extension. They can have a conversation with other growers and, and uh, you know, zero in on either was there something at fault in the test? Is there certainly something at fault in their expectations about the product? What, what have you. But to come back around, I mean, in that definition of biostimulant, it concludes with enhance or benefit nutrient uptake, nutrient efficiency, tolerance to stress, or crop quality and yield. So we typically get paid for yield. We can get paid for quality. Certainly it keeps us in the market. Very, very important. But more often than not, we're getting paid for yield. And so growers are, are um, most of the time right to expect some yield enhancement by virtue of inoculation. It would be up to them to determine if that yield enhancement is economically um, you know, sufficient for them to continue to use the product or not. Matt, are there currently trials going on studying biostimulants or trials kind of future planned? I understand you've done some research at Ohio State. But is this something that's being broadly studied? I would say, uh, well, yes, the quick answer is yes. I mean, biostimulants are being studied. But I'd like to clarify that just a minute, Katie, if I, if I could. You know, one of, the, one of the reasons that microbial-based biostimulants are important, okay, I think just one of the many reasons that they are important is that, from my point of view, relative to other tools in the toolbox and other inputs that many people rely on, or look to look to be able to rely on very consistently. Microbial-based biostimulants may be among the least well-tested, the least well-represented in research extension portfolios, the least well-represented in, you know, in third-party testing programs. Where by third-party, of course, people uh, should probably recognize that as you know, company A brings brings the product to a researcher who has no stake in the outcome of the of the, of the test. They wash, you know, the company washes their hands of, of the test, if you will, turns the product over to a third party, it's tested, and it's made public. So microbial-based biostimulants are important for many reasons, but that's one of them, is that while there is testing going on, and my team, uh, very, very grateful to have the support in the last few years of, of the USDA Organic Transitions Program, the North Central Center, you know, research extension program, very, and, and some uh, companies, very, very grateful for that support. But I would say overall, throughout that toolbox that I mentioned of growers, uh, uh, that growers have and the inputs that they rely on, microbial-based biostimulants may be among the least well-represented in these key categories. So we need more testing. All that points me to say is that we need more testing. We need more representation in those portfolios. We need more on-farm testing. We need more of that third-party uh, you know, reporting, if you will, um, to, to really enhance the case for where they fit in the toolbox, quite honest. Matt, have you looked at all um, in your research about multiple active microbes versus single microbes? Like, is there any benefit that you've seen for, for doing a whole bunch at once, or is there specific interactions? Another great question. Um, and, and by now, uh, people either know or they suspect it, or they have some pre-existing knowledge that I am not a microbiologist by training. So, um, you know, uh, I, I have to be mindful of my blind spots, if you will, in terms of What's you know what's really at work 
in these plant microbe interactions because we do have a crop and we do have a microbe. And when I say a microbe, that could be one that is specifically chosen, like I think you were alluding to, or it can be what they, I've, I've used the word already so, you know, so far here, consortium, a community, a group, right? So think of it as the, uh, uh, as, as the uh, I don't know what the current, the, the league of superheroes, right? So one can either rely on Superman or Superwoman, or one can bring in the whole team. So Dennis, to your question, it varies by product. So some are based on a, on, on a single one, literally a single microbe, uh, supposedly, you know, a, a cleanup hitter, a very powerful, powerful microbe. Others rely on a consortium, if you will, um, not to put words in anybody's mouth with regard to the manufacturing supply industry, but there's a perception that those products are, well, we're going to hedge our bets and that in any one particular season or cropping situation, one or more of these consor- members of the consortium will rise to the fore and have, uh, have a beneficial impact, or they have clear evidence that, c- that the consortium is required that to tease apart the individual contributions of each member is a painstaking, very difficult, very time-consuming, and very expensive process. But what they found through you know, fairly rigorous testing is that that group needs to be present for the beneficial impact to, uh, to, to occur. So you do see, I mean, if growers pick up packages, uh, are looking at various products, they will see products based on a single microbe, and they will see ones based on a consortium or containing a consortium. Well, Matt, thank you for joining us today. Um, I think we're going to start to transition to the second half of the um, show at this point. And um, so if there's any last comments, um, I guess now is a good time before we do that. Um, otherwise, we'll talk about um, what's going to be happening um, next week. Yeah, I recognize that we have we have growers with us. Uh, we certainly have people, members of the research extension community. We have uh, private consultants. Um, I, I understand there may be some certified crop advisors. And, of course, we have folks uh, from the same communities listening to this discussion after the fact. So we definitely want to have um, – you know, get people's questions addressed as thoroughly uh, as possible. So whether it's right here, right now, uh, live, if you're with us, that would be fantastic. But if not, don't hesitate to follow up with me or some other member of the uh, Great Lakes Vegetable Working Group or another, uh, you know, uh, trusted um, expert, if you will, in this in this important area. So, um, all right. So let's talk about um, what's going to be happening next week. Uh, Dennis, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, next week, we got irrigation setups for vegetables uh, with Ron Goley. He's from Michigan State University. Uh, and Lyndon Kelly serving a joint appointment with Purdue Extension and Michigan State uh, University Extension. So same place. Um, you can sign up for the listserv. We'll send you an email or same time. Uh, 12.30 Eastern, 11.30 Central. And um, if you do have any burning questions regarding irrigation setups, which is, I think, very timely, uh, you can email the questions to greatlakesvegwg at gmail.com for us to answer on the show. So this week's production is supported uh, by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. Uh, And this week's episode is sponsored by our Macro Bro microbio bros this week i've heard of microbiologicals for enhancing plant health new for 2020 meet macrobio bros macrobio bros are scale replicas the size of small dogs 
of all your favorite plant health enhancing microbiologicals pre-programmed with the audible praise and encouragement your plants crave. Enhance nutrient uptake. Make gains, bro. Encourage root growth. Dig deep, bro. Build plant defenses. Fight it, bro. You gotta fight it. Reduce the need for fungicides and fertilizers. You don't even need that crap, bro. Ease plant stress factors. Bro, just relax. Yes, all your favorites are here. Azotobacter. What's up? Bacillus. Yo. Clostridium. Eh. Glomus. Jagerbombs. Pseudomonas. Ladies. Rhizobium. Noise. Scleroderma. Huh. And trichoderma. You even live, bro? Try Macrobio Bros today. Do it, bro. You'll find all those folks and more. <laughs> Not to make light uh, of, a, of a very important situation, but, you know, that's, uh, that's a humorous take on a very serious aspect, actually, of this product category. The, it, could, it could make it seem to growers who are becoming interested in this that they also need to be a microbiologist to be effective. And I know that I, my team, and I, and many others are working really hard to make that not be true. In other words, um, one should not have to have extensive training in microbiology to harness, if you will, the potential benefits of the microbes that we are talking about as, that are included in products uh, right now and likely to be included in products of the future. Um, so don't get put off by the names. Don't get put off by Azotobacter or Bacillus or Pseudomonas or Streptomyces or Mycorrhizae. They're, they're Latin names for a reason, but the major players will become familiar to you if they aren't already. And don't be surprised if you see some of the same names listed as beneficial that you are dealing with as not beneficial, as pathogenic, for example. Pseudomonads, bacilli, they share that same genus, but they have dramatically different impacts on the plant. So the, both, um, both items can be true. So as you wade deeper into the microbial biostimulant um, in a world and want to make uh, better use of microbial biostimulants that are on the, on the shelf and available to you, expect to see names, as you've already seen before, as pathogens perhaps, or similar names anyway, and expect to need to understand just a little bit more about um, plant microbe interactions in the sense that some are more compatible with certain crops than others and the like. And that's where you know, increasing your knowledge base will help. Reaching out to an expert will help um, uh, because it doesn't, uh, doesn't need to remain so mysterious, if you will. That would be our, that's, you know, that's our hope here with this conversation. And I know that there are quite a few resources out there to, to uh, continue that process. Not to put in a plug, but we have in our lab what's called the Bugs in a Jug webpage. We try to, uh, if you just Google that or call me or email me, I can, I can direct you to it. Um, there we're trying to, to provide resources to people who are asking us many of the same questions that have been asked here, plus a, plus a host of others. But Katie and Dennis, I know that we have a, a few questions uh, queued up, um, and I'd be happy to, to address them. Uh, thanks, Matt. I, I know I look forward to following the research that's happening there and um, learning more about this topic. Um, for those of you online on Zoom, you have three options for participating live. The first way is to put questions in the Q&A box, and you can also upvote someone else's questions if you want to push it to the top of our list to discuss. The chat box should be used for comments so we don't lose track of the questions coming in. 
Finally, if you feel the need to speak up, you can raise your hand and we can unmute you to speak together. Um, we will handle as many of the online uploaded questions as we can before we move to the telephones. Um, if you're dialing in from a telephone, you can raise your hand by pushing star nine. So let's see here. Um, yeah, it looks like we've got a question. Um, are there fertilizer interactions with soil applied microbes? Does manure provide some of these microbes? There are interactions and they, they need to uh, be, be, it's good to be mindful of the potential interactions between uh, a synthetic fertilizer or a manure and the inoculant that, and I'm using that word, I hope correctly here, an inoculant by virtue of the biostimulant is a, is a form of inoculation where we're, we're purposefully applying a microbe to the crop uh, root zone most of the time. So there are interactions, mainly because every fertilizer or every manure application changes the physics, the chemistry, and the biology of the, of the soil zone. And those changes can work for or against the establishment of a very productive relationship between the inoculant that you're, you're applying and the crop that you're trying to grow. And um, so, again, that's a situation where you want to ask very good questions of the product supplier. But in general, avoid um, significant extremes, if you will, in soil chemistry whether that be pH, salt levels, uh, for sure, uh, that might occur uh, with applications of synthetic fertilizer. As far as manure is concerned, that has its own, you know, what type of manure are we talking about? What animal, what bedding, uh, how, what age, and so on. Lots of complexity to the, to the manure spectrum there. And, and so we'd want to understand what that manure is actually bringing. And as far as are some of the microbes in the inoculants also present in the fertilizers, or I'm sorry, in the manures? Possibly but I would consider that to be very rare. Does manure application have benefit? Of course it can. We, we see data on that all the time. Those benefits may not be deriving 100% from the microbes that are in that manure. As a matter of fact, of course, some of the, some of the microbes in manure we don't want anywhere near our vegetables, right? So from a food safety standpoint. So um, the quick answer is, does manure provide some of the microbes? Yes, but very improbably and very, you know, uh, if you will, in a non-controlled fashion. So um, a manure is not a substitute for a my microbial biostimulant and vice versa. Thanks, man. Uh, and the next one we have, I guess, can they, can they be over-applied, do you think? I think they can. I think they can. Some of our uh, research in the last uh, four plus years, we did what we call rate studies, where we took uh, up to six different products. We applied them at the rate one half of the recommended rate on the package, one equal to the recommended rate on the package, and one and a half times the recommended rate on the package. In many cases, we did not see a greater impact with applying at one and a half X the rate. In other words, one and a half times the rate. The rate and the timing, the four, what we call the four R's in many nutrient management programs, you know, rate, timing, source, placement, and composition, um, they're still being worked out for microbial-based biostimulants. Um, I would say they can be overapplied mainly from the economic point of view. Um, obviously, they range in cost, uh, not only material cost, but application costs. So if money is no object in terms of the expense side, uh, of course, you know, one can apply as much as you want. But I think if you're, if one is, if you're tracking your input costs fairly carefully, uh, my, these products, like many others, can be overapplied relative to the gain that they're going to give you. I think you might have touched on it a little bit in the first question, but do you think the fertilizer can kill the microbes? I think it's possible. I think a number, a number of steps that a grower or a user could take or not take 
can end up compromising the effectiveness of the inoculant. We've discussed this uh, at other times, uh, in, you know, with other folks, but again, in conversations that were recorded and, and are available online. Um, in terms of, you know, purchasing an inoculant, handling an inoculant, applying an inoculant, what are the conditions that need to be true to help ensure, much like seed, that we don't compromise the quality of that seed, the viability of that seed, or the health of the seedlings that would result from, you know, from sowing it. That's the same kind of mindset we have to take with, with microbial-based biostimulants. The, bio, the microbes in the inoculant are either living and active, or they are dormant but waiting to come, become living and active, um, you know, resume activity. And steps that a user uh, or, uh, frankly, a handler can you know, take or not take can compromise their viability. So the rule of thumb is if you're uncomfortable, so is the microbe. If you would be uncomfortable sticking your ungloved hand into a pail of fertilizer and letting it sit there, or a bag of fertilizer and letting it sit there, chances are the microbes that you're using as an inoculant will be as well. Now, that may be an extreme example, but you can imagine how banding a fertilizer at the same time that you're banding a drench application of a, of a biostimulant might compromise the effectiveness of the biostimulant, frankly, more than it would compromise the action of the fertilizer because the fertilizer is not living. So it might be a separation in timing. It might be a separation in placement. Uh, would, would solve would solve that problem. So yes, I in my own mind, I can concoct fairly easily a scenario in which the fertilizer would deactivate or you know compromise the ability of the microbe to do its job. Matt, what are your thoughts on biochar? My thoughts on biochar is that it's a it's an active area of research. It's somewhat you know um, aside from the the topic of today in terms of the biostimulant category, but. Uh, if folks are following the biochar, you know, um, if you will, phenomenon and issue, they recognize it as one that deserves a f- full attention for its, um, you know, potential benefits. But like, like biostimulants, all biochars are not created equal. All biochars do not have the same effects when applied at even the same rates or under the same conditions. So just like bio, all biochars are not created and act uh, equally and act equally, so is true. So also is true for biostimulants, and and in this age now, which I think you know is a is a, a very exciting one, specific to microbes, we are at some level experiencing the age of the microbe. We see certainly, without saying, we're experiencing the age an unwelcome age of the microbe at this point in time from a public health standpoint. But putting that concern aside for the moment, we see microbes and their role in our in our own individual health. We are certainly exploding in our interest and in our um, attention to soil microbiology and its effect on farm and farming, farming and farming systems. And microbial-based biostimulants are, are, you know, not to not to exaggerate, but they're. It's almost like they are at the beginning of their development, and it's too early to say exactly where they will reside in the toolbox going forward. But much like the the initial groups of people who discovered immunizations. Who um, discovered the you know the, the what, what antibiotics are capable of doing? Everyone who has been responsible for helping us understand how, how microbes can be harnessed for good um, are applying some of that to you know uh, making microbial-based biostimulants uh, con- uh, consistently more effective in our in our agriculture, especially in our vegetable production, where they are very very common. Um, statistics vary, but. Um, a significant percentage of growers do use microbial-based biostimulants in many seasons. Um, 
And, and so there is uh, an obvious curiosity about them out there. Well, thank you, Matt. Um, I think at this point we can open up um, the questions to any of our phone listeners. Um, and you can raise your hand um, and unmute yourself by pressing star nine. We'll see if we get any coming in this way. Looks like we don't have many people on the phone, so we may not get any this way. No takers this week, it looks like. I guess not. But this has been a good discussion. Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it and um, look forward to hearing more about this in the future. Happy to be here and grateful for the questions. Um, and uh, we just encourage people to, if you're an already already a user of microbial baseball stimulants, uh, contemplate what step you could take next to help enhance their effectiveness for you. And if you're not familiar with them, you know, consider what steps you can take, uh, especially with a with help extension, private consulting, to experiment with them and experiment with them, if you will, responsibly and reliably, so that you get uh, an adequate, you know, um, uh, reliable answer to to your to your questions and your curiosity. And certainly, if you do that, um, do share what's you know. Well, without compromising any of your any of your uh, business position, but certainly share what you learn with other people, uh, because this is an area where uh, the more sharing that occurs, the better off we will be in terms of helping people, you know, understand where they fit in the toolbox. Certainly. Well, we hope everybody will join us next week for irrigation setups for vegetable production. Um, we hope everybody has a great week ahead, and we will see you next week. Yep. Good luck, everyone. Thanks again. Bye, everyone. Take care. Bye.